Good morning. Good morning. Let's begin with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love, and we ask that your spirit will join us, uh, draw us near to you, uh, transform us to be most like Christ, that we can shine bright at this time in human history. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So a few announcements. Good news. Uh, Come and Reason Ministries are now the owner of the uh, property at 4922 La Kalina Way in Collegedale. If you're online, you're getting an image of the property right now. It's just up the street about a half mile. It's uh, two stories, over 14,000 square feet. We'll be occupying the first floor of 7,000 some square feet. We will now have uh, renovations to do. We're going to have an expanded kitchen so we can have uh, regular potlucks. Uh, we are going to have a um, recording uh, studio theater so that we can have live programs with an audience there. Uh, we will have an office there. We will also, our plan is to have a, a section uh, room uh, for children and children's programs so uh, adults with small children can uh, come to our class. And I want to be clear, if anybody suggests, oh, you're open in your own church. No, we're not. We are not a church. We're an independent ministry, and we're not planning to do church. We're planning to do just like we do here, except be able to fellowship more. And not be restricted when the next shutdown comes. Hear the neighbors. Yeah. Or hear the neighbors and the other, to have actually, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Hear the noise when they're running this room next to us, yeah. We do have a mortgage, and we will be uh, having to to meet that. Okay, um, let's move on to our lesson. Before we get into lesson six, as you know, we did not even touch the lesson from last week, lesson five, because of uh, what we did discuss. So I just wanted to, to take one element out of lesson five, and because I thought it was important to cover that. And that was out of Monday's lesson last week, where it quotes Matthew eleven twenty nine and 30, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And if you consider a yoke, for, for those of us who don't work with, uh, in, uh, in animal industry anymore, what is a yoke? A yoke is not a bridle. It is not a bit. A yoke is what goes like between two oxen, a big piece of wood that you often see in movies, that is designed to share the load between the two. And so when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, he's talking about take upon him, upon us, something from him that when we take it upon us, it joins us to him in a way that the load of life that we're carrying is not carried by us anymore, by ourselves. It's shared with our Savior. Now the question is, what is the yoke? What is the yoke that binds us to Christ? It's the yoke of love. That is the yoke that binds us to Christ, joins our heart, relieves us of the fear and the guilt. This is from the book Desire of Ages, page 329. The yoke that binds to service is the law of God. How do you hear that? Before I go on to the very next sentence. Okay, in the very next sentence, this author writes, the great law of love. Revealed in Eden. That's the law, the law of love. Proclaimed upon Sinai and in the new covenant written in the heart is that which binds the human worker to the will of God. If we were left to follow our own inclinations to go where our will would lead, we should fall into Satan's ranks and become possessors of his attributes. Therefore, God confines us to his will, which is high and noble and elevating. He desires that we shall patiently and wisely take up The duties of service, the yoke of service. Christ himself is born in humanity. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Love for God, zeal for his glory, 
and love for fallen humanity brought Jesus to this earth to suffer and to die. This was the controlling power of his life, this principle he bids us adopt. This is design law. This is how God built life to operate. We cannot grow, develop, advance through being idle. Amen. Through the lack of exercise. Through allowing others to solve problems for us. We must fulfill our duties and our responsibilities in order to develop, advance, and grow. It is for our health and wellness and development that we're each given certain burdens in life to carry, to fulfill. But we are not to carry them alone. We are to be yoked up with Christ and carry them with Him. But Christ isn't to carry them all for us either. He wants us to exercise our abilities, as the text said, to engage in loving service. But those who practice protocols that removes life responsibilities from other people destroy character, undermine health, undermine wellness, inflame selfishness. People who are not united with Christ, working with the yoke of loving service, will be yoked with the great burdens of this life that crush them. This is from the same author <coughs> out of the book, uh, excuse me, the, the article, Signs of the Times, January 19, 1891. But instead of taking up the yoke of Christ, which is the yoke of loving service and law of love, how many bind upon their souls a galling yoke, a grievous burden? Many wear a load of care. Worldly perplexities are accepted. Worldly customs are followed. Worldly fashions practiced. And their character is marred. Their life is made a weariness. Jesus would have them lay aside this yoke of bondage and take, up, take upon them his yoke of love that they may learn to be meek and lonely in heart. The weakest soul, wearing Christ's yoke, bearing his burden, may become strong in his grace, and he will find the yoke easy and the burden light. So moving on to any questions about that, move on to lesson six. Lesson six is about family relationships. And in the last paragraph of Sabbath's lesson, it says the following. Family relationships often are complicated and painful, leaving us restless, hurt, and carrying loads of emotional baggage that we, in turn, offload on others. I think everyone has experienced some family relationships that are hurtful or difficult. What do we do when we have someone in our family an adult who is acting in ways that are harmful, injurious, painful, hurtful to others, someone who doesn't shoulder responsibilities for themselves, someone who pursues the easy road, not the healthy road. And despite much resources provided, they haven't matured, they haven't grown up, they haven't learned self-governance, they haven't learned personal responsibility. Anybody have anybody like that in their family? Don't 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 raise your hand. <clears throat> I have no idea what you're talking about. Don't no idea, no. <laughs> so what do we do? Number one, I'm gonna give you a little kind of number one, assess their capacity. Their innate ability to grow and mature. 
if they were like my deceased Aunt Sandy, mentally handicapped, and they don't have capacity, it would be wrong of us to expect more than they're capable of providing. So first we assess their capacity. But within their capacity, even if they have handicaps like my Aunt Sandy, we absolutely should expect them to achieve what they are capable of. So my aunt was was able to become a person that was helpful. She would make her bed, do all of her hygiene, do, do help with chores around the house. She was pleasant. She would volunteer at the Samaritan Center under supervision. She could never live independently, but she learned how to, within the limits of her capacities, be a helpful person in society. So love, what will love do with a person in the family like this? Love first assesses with truthfulness the reality of what you're dealing with. Then love provides people opportunity for development. This would include during childhood, giving the children love and affection, security, food, clothing, shelter, appropriate boundaries, discipline, education and instruction followed by opportunity for application followed by correction and re-education and further opportunity for application and development followed by correction and re-instruction followed by more opportunity for application and this goes on and on through childhood doesn't it over and over and over again and in God's um, in the respect of God, he does that with us through our whole lifetime. I mean, he provides correction. No, no, no. Uh, it's, just, it's just through our whole lifetime until a point. God does this with us through our whole lifetime until a point. Until one of two points. Either we're incapable of listening to him, or we've achieved what he desired from us. So yeah, I, I, I go with the first point, until what's the unpardonable sin? Until we have persisted in rebellion against him so long that we've destroyed the faculties within ourselves that can respond to the spirit of truth. That no amount of love, no amount of truth, no amount of intervention has any impact upon us anymore. So you're right, but not necessarily our whole life. We might still be living, but be beyond reach because we've destroyed the faculties that respond to truth. He would love to, but we won't listen. Well, I think I was thinking along the lines of the Christian who's open to his right. discipline and correction. Right. Now, try it again. No, that's right. No, we never... That's exactly right. For those... Do you get it? That's exactly right. For those who are working with him, he keeps helping us grow and mature. That's exactly right. So... Educate, instruct, educate, instruct, correct, and keep doing and giving back opportunity for application, development, and growth. But eventually love does something else. Thank you. That's exactly right. Love sets them free. Let's them go. Those who have capacity to be self-governed, even if they never develop and apply that capacity, must be set free to reap what they have chosen and sown 
lest you collude with their eternal destruction. The story of prodigal son comes to mind. The prodigal son decided he wanted to go off into wild living, no longer lived a self-governed life, took his inheritance and wasted it all and ends up with the pigs and the pig slop. The father was still a man of wealth. Why didn't the father send his uh, agents behind the boy to send him pizza from Pizza Hut and putting him up in a motel at night? He could have done it. He had the resources. Why not? Because in reaping the consequences of his choices, he hit what the modern people call rock bottom. And it says in the, in the text, eating the pig slop, he came to his senses. This is what God was trying to teach Saul on the, on, the, on the Damascus Road. It's hard when you kick against the thorns. Kicking against the thorn, meaning it's painful. It's painful. God permits the pain of sin in our lives for the same reason that a loving parent wants a child who touches a hot stove to feel pain. You don't want to numb the child's hand. You want the child to, if they touch the hot stove, you want it to hurt. Why do you want it to hurt? So they'll pull back quickly and minimize the damage. It's painful to go against God's laws. It hurts us. Yes? In, and Tara will tell this herself, in her breaking point, her bottom, when she was going through that same desperation and felt like God was not near her, she called me and she told me what was going on. And I knew that it was God doing that work in her. I knew it. And it was like God was telling me, don't you dare. Don't you dare. And so I, I didn't go over when she wanted me to. She went through that process of breaking. And then at 3 o'clock in the morning, I woke up. I woke up and I said, I woke up and I said, God, can I go now? And he said, you can go now. And she had already gone through that process of breaking. That's right. You have to allow that process to go. Well, that's what love does. And then love also will set boundaries, not just with family members, with everyone, deciding on whom you allow to enter in the inmost uh, affections of your hearts and circles of trust. Just because someone's a relative does not make them trustworthy and does not mean you let them into the inmost circles of your confidences and trust. Monday's lesson, the title of the day's lesson is Dysfunction at Home, and focuses on Abraham and Sarah and the conflict that occurred with Hagar and then with Isaac and Esau and then Jacob and Jacob's children. What lessons do we learn in family leadership, family dynamics from Abraham and his descendants there, children and grandchildren and so forth? Why are these uh, dysfunctional family stories recorded in Scripture? Okay, I agree with that. They're, they're, They're recorded because they reveal in real life the two antagonistic principles at war in the hearts of people. That's what's happening. There's a war going on between the principles of, of God, truth, love, liberty, the principles of Satan, fear, selfishness, lies, deceit, exploitation. And the Bible allows these stories to reveal that without God, in our hearts, fear and selfishness, sin corrupts us, and we will eventually betray and exploit even those the closest to us. 
those in our own families. These stories reveal the unavoidable results of sin, which is anti-love. It is selfishness, fear, the survival drives. And that's what it will do in families. And only God's grace and God's love prevents this. These stories further document that sin destroys and causes pain, not God. And it reveals how the sin brings the pain and the suffering. And how God's methods of love are the only methods that heal and restore. So, let's look at Joseph's brothers. Why did Joseph's brothers do this? They allowed their fear, their selfishness, their jealousy to take control of their hearts. If they actually loved Joseph more than they loved themselves, what would have happened when Joseph got rewards from dad? They would have celebrated. They would have rejoiced. They would have joined in the party. But they didn't love Joseph. They loved themselves. They were threatened. They were intimidated. They were fear-driven. They were jealous. And so they sell him as a slave and lie to their dad that he was killed. And Joseph suffers terrible injustice. Injustice from his brothers. His human rights were violated. He was not treated as an individual, but now treated as property to be bought and sold. He's taken as by slave traders and sold as a slave in a slave market in Egypt to Potiphar. There is no question that what happened to Joseph was wrong. It was sin. It was unjust. Joseph had no ability to stop it. He could not control the choices of others. Joseph had to decide, though. How would he, in governance of himself, deal with the injustice perpetrated against him? Would he become resentful, bitter, hateful? Would he fantasize about getting even with his brothers? Would he pray passionately that God would take vengeance upon these slave-trading Egyptians? Would he seek to sabotage and injure those who held him and treated him as a slave? Or would Joseph surrender his life to God? Would he seek God's presence, God's methods, God's law, God's purpose for his life? Would he trust God to right his wrongs, or would he refuse and become bitter, angry, selfish, and corrupt in character? Would Joseph, in the face of injustice, become corrupt, Or would he become more just, which is another way of saying more righteous, through living out God's methods in his life? Joseph chose to trust God and apply God's methods to himself. And how did Joseph treat Potiphar? How did he treat Potiphar? Spect? Faithful, loyal, reliable, diligent, true, dedicated, honest, carrying out all of his slave duties with integrity. This is incredible. This is anti-culture, anti-worldly, anti-human justice, what Joseph did. Why would Joseph do this? 
Potiphar was an Egyptian. He wasn't a member of Joseph's family. He wasn't a descendant of Abraham. He wasn't a, a, a worshiper of Yahweh. He was a pagan, an idol worshiper. But worst of all, he was a slave owner. He must be corrupt. And certainly buying and selling slaves and owning Joseph as a slave makes Potiphar undeserving of Joseph's loyalty, right? Was, was Joseph loyal to Potiphar because Potiphar deserved it? Or was Joseph loyal to, to Potiphar because Joseph deserved it? Because Joseph was a loyal subject of the Creator God who sought to honor God by living out God's law of love in the face of injustice. Yes? Joseph didn't deserve to be sold as a slave, and Potiphar didn't deserve to be, um, to treat him like that. But the point is that Joseph was loyal to God because he had chosen to trust God. And so no matter what happened, Joseph, because he chosen to trust God, whatever happened, he was going to be loyal to God no matter what Potiphar did. So let's talk about what people deserve. Yes, let's. Let's talk about what people deserve. What did Joseph deserve? Did he deserve to have his character corrupted, to become hard-hearted, to become bitter, to become selfish, to become hateful, to become corrupt, to become satanic? Or did he deserve to become more like Christ? What did he deserve? I don't think deserve has anything to do with it. No, no. It's, 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 the, it's the idea here. He deserved... He deserved the results of his choices. That's right. That's right. So he chose what he chose, not because Potiphar had a right to it. He, he, he chose to be loyal, faithful, honest, true, not because Potiphar had a right to demand it or because he was owned, but because Joseph understood God's law and he understood that was the only way for Joseph to be a healthy human being. He served a higher power. He served a higher power and a higher purpose and, and operated on a higher plane of reality. I think the word deserve automatically takes us down an imposed law avenue. I deserve that. It's my right. That's right. And I'm, and I'm, and, right, that's right. And, and, and mentality. I don't think deserve has anything to do with it. It's just how reality works. So that word can be heard through two law lenses. And you are keyed to hear it through the imposed law lens, and that's how yeah. the world is keyed us to hear it. Yeah. But there is the design law lens. You reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. You deserve to reap what you sow. Still makes me if you don't, if you, if, if you don't exercise and you eat Big Macs every day, you don't deserve to win the Olympics. <laughs> right. You deserve a, a... You deserve a coronary. Am I the only one that, that, is, that has a problem with the word deserve? If I okay. but, but I'm purposely using it because I'm wanting to trigger that sense of entitlement. Yes. That's why I want people to recognize this worldly system of thinking is corrupt. And also, Russell, bring back that very basic element that Christ deserved to be on the cross. Absolutely not. Okay. But the reality was he chose... To fall, to fall through being present and not running, not destroying, and allow others 
to have their choices and not have Christ react out of fear. They have Christ react out of the law and still be present for us. So he didn't deserve it either. Well, of course. Exactly. No, no, no. But the other says that, yeah. So Potiphar did not deserve his loyalty. Joseph, however, because of who Joseph was, because of who Joseph loved, because of Joseph's values, because of the kind of person Joseph chose to be, chose to live in harmony with God's principles and did not seek the principles of the world to retaliate, to be bitter, to be hateful. One of Satan's biggest traps in the world today is to incite real injustice and then get people to seek justice through the application of Satan's methods, Satan's laws, Satan's principles, and the infliction of punishment as retaliation through the various agencies of this world. Because they deserve it. (laughs) Because it's right. Satan says... It's right. So Satan says, it's right, Satan says, for us to be angry, to be resentful, to be bitter, to harbor fantasies of suffering toward our enemies. It is right in the world system to use whatever means necessary to ensure those we decide are bad get what they deserve. So it's right and just to riot to destroy other people's property, to shoplift, to disrupt traffic, to drag people out of their cars and beat them, to lie, to falsify, to falsely accuse. As long as it advances our social justice, then it's right and just to behave this way. Every sin deserves punishment. Oh, how Satan rejoices. But Joseph didn't seek to undermine the slave master. Yet despite Joseph's high moral standard, his faithfulness, his loyal service, he suffers more injustice. Joseph is now accused of sexual assault. And he's in prison for a crime he did not commit. What an outrage. Falsely accused, falsely imprisoned after years of loyal and faithful service. Certainly now it is right and just for Joseph to be resentful and angry and bitter and to seek justice. But how did Joseph respond? Did he become bitter and angry and hateful? Did he seek to retaliate? Did he fantasize about getting even? No, he lived out God's law of love and governance of himself and trusted God with the outcome. And eventually, through God's miraculous interventions, because Joseph was faithful and trusted him, Joseph is elevated to the second most powerful position in the world, second only to Pharaoh. And once Joseph... Now, is is Joseph's position one of those positions of uh, a title with no power? Or does Joseph have real power? More power than most of the officials in our government today? If you think about how those governments worked back then? Yeah. Did he have to get committee approval? Did he have a judiciary oversight to, to have a federal, that, that, to stop him, to put a restraining order on his actions and executive orders? No. He had real power. And what did he do with it? Joseph had the authority to right all past injustices against him. He could have punished Potiphar's wife and Potiphar if he wanted. By today's standards, he could have, uh, he could have made justice 
done righteousness, done what was right by putting them in prison or fining them or make them pay reparations. Or to death. Why didn't Joseph do any of this? He had the power. Why didn't he do it? Yes. Back in prison, the part where he chose to trust, but he also acted. He acted in unselfish love to help his fellow prisoners. He acted to make the world he was in better. So it's not just a passive trust. It's an active engagement. So he continued to live out the principles because of who he was. Yes. So why didn't he seek? He's got real power now. He was treated badly. Why didn't he seek? He was falsely imprisoned. Why didn't he seek reparations or any type of other uh, retaliatory justice? It wasn't in his heart to do so. Brilliant. So what happens in the hearts of people in society today when they focus on past wrongs? Real wrongs like Joseph's or imagined wrongs. It doesn't really matter. Real or imagined. What happens if they focus on the wrongs, either to them or to their ancestors, and they hold to anger and bitterness and resentment and seek to use the governments of this world to make others pay? This is Satan's goal, folks. It corrupts the characters of the people who pursue this. It hardens them. It obstructs God's grace from working in their heart. And don't you think media also sets the tone for our... Uh, and the narrative. Well, yeah, I mean, the way they set up, here's the enemy, look how bad he is. So the good guy comes in and steals everything along the way and runs into everybody's car and hit, and then takes, a, uh, takes revenge or gets back at the, at the guy who gave him evil. So video games, dramatic television, so on and so forth, sets the whole of those who participate in that. That sets a tone for the way you should respond. So, so it's not just media. The entire human culture is built on Satan's design of law. Satan's design of law is imposed rules. When somebody breaks the rules, sin must be punished. Every sin must be punished, urged Satan, as our ages have 61. It's Satan's whole model. Therefore, we make right the wrong by punishing the wrongdoer. And the, ergo, if the government doesn't punish them, then we, the vigilante, will go out. We will do Or our superheroes, Superman and Spider-Man and Batman, they come in and they use power and they'll punish the bad people. Okay? The entire narrative of human culture, all the fantasies, all the myths, Thor, of the, uh, Thor and all the gods and so forth, they all came in to punish the bad people, your enemies. This is the whole system. This is Satan's entire system. So it's not just the media, but the media certainly is inflaming that and pushing that narrative. And that's why we have to get power. That's why the ends justify the means. That means we don't, we'll do anything we have to to get our person in office. And once our person's in office, we will punish those people on the other side. This is the complete corruption of the world. Yes. Well, no, I was going to say the same thing, but you can use the media or whatever you want as a scapegoat. But Joseph did not let whatever circumstances he was in determine how he was going to react. He already had that in himself, like she said. And so the circumstances really had nothing to do with it. So do you see how all the kingdoms of this world are Satan's? And he uses all the governments of this world to inflict punishment upon people, to make others pay. And when we do that, it only spreads more sin, causes more hatred, incites more division, causes more conflict, impairs the gospel, and corrupts character. This is the rise of the beast. The beast is not rising to do injustice. Get your mind around that. This beast of revelation is going to rise to do justice. That's what it's going to do. 
And it's going to seduce the world that this is how we make things right by passing these laws and, and coercing people with these fines and imprisonments and taking away these liberties. Yes. So considering these family dynamics, where did Joseph get this? From, where did, how did his character get to be developed at such a young age that he ends up in, in Egypt behaving this way? So it, it, the other way. it happened on the journey from the, the pit in Dothan to the slave block in Egypt. And on that journey, which weeks or months, I don't know how long it took, that's where he surrendered and accepted and invited God into his heart and was transformed. And the Holy Spirit gave him these principles. And he trusted God at this point. He surrendered all to the Lord at that point. And that's where it happened. And so it was in that extremity. Now, he, he had a love for God. He wanted to honor God, but he hadn't. It was the, it was the, and this is why the Lord allows trials and tribulations to come. It, it allows us to make the decision. Do we surrender or do we try to do it all on our own? Do we surrender to, to Christ? And he surrendered his life and the outcome to, to God at that point. You can read about that in Patriarchs and Prophets, which he describes specifically where uh, he made this surrender in this difficult time. Uh, if Joseph would have applied, now think, think through, walk with me now. If Joseph would have applied the philosophy of today's world and rebelled against Potiphar in overt or covert ways, say having the affair with Potiphar's wife, what would have been the likely outcome? He would have been killed. He would have been executed. And once he's executed, he's not there to help protect his family during the famine. And his family starves to death, and they die, and there's no avenue for the Messiah. And Satan wins the goal to try and destroy the avenue for the Messiah, which is what the Old Testament is really trying to focus on. After Genesis 3.15, Messiah's promise, the seed of the woman, is coming across the serpent's head. And the entire Old Testament focus narrative now is on God working to bring Messiah and Satan trying to stop it. Understand this, God cannot win his cause through people whose hearts harbor resentment, anger, bitterness, a desire for retaliation, people who long to inflict punishment on others or seek forced reparations. If that's your heart, God can't work through you until your heart changes. Now, he it's possible he could still use you like a, a donkey, because he spoke through a donkey, if you remember, to Balaam. God can use people who aren't on his side. He uses many people through history to achieve goals that, that they, uh, they do some action for a larger purpose, but, but their hearts are not on his side. He can't really fulfill his purposes in them. God can only win his cause through people who trust him and follow him to eliminate fear, selfishness, anger, bitterness, jealousy, and the desire for retaliation from their hearts and minds and restore his love, his character, so that we love our enemies as Christ loves us. Jesus, you, heard, you remember Jesus, what are his words? You have, you have said, I say, love your enemies. This is the only way forward, and the social justice movements of this world are traps of Satan designed to inflame selfishness, incite division, cause hostility between people's corrupt character, all in the name of justice so people can feel good while they do injustice to somebody else. But isn't it also driven by 
those who then react out of fear, and it just continues that cycle and escalates. It's the exact same trap of the Dark Ages church, burning people at the stake so we could save their souls, so we can feel good about killing people who don't agree with us. Does that seem trap? Only God's law of love, truth, and liberty heals and unites. Only as we trust God with our lives, our futures, the outcomes of our futures, and stay faithful in governing ourselves in harmony with his principles, yoked up together with him in the yoke of love, can we overcome Satan and the powers of this world. And I was thinking about Joseph this week, preparing this lesson, and all the threats that we face in society and from governments and the abuses and injustices we see. I was reading uh, Psalms 27, 1 through 6 in the remedy, and I wanted to share those verses with you this morning. The Lord enlightens me and heals me. Why should I be afraid? The Lord keeps me safe. Why should I be afraid? When selfish people attack me and try to destroy me, they will stumble and fall. Even if surrounded by an entire army, I will not be afraid. Even if the army attacks, I will trust the outcome to God. There is one thing I desire from the Lord, one thing my heart truly wants, to be part of the Lord's family and live in his house all my life, to gaze upon his beauty and have him as my teacher. He will shelter me from danger. He will keep me safe in his home. And he will establish me secure on the immovable rock. My character will rise above the selfish enemies around me. My joy I will offer, with joy I will offer my heart as his temple. I will sing yes. I will sing praises to the Lord. We would like Joseph... We would like to be like Joseph. We, like Joseph, when faced with injustices, must decide whose methods will we practice. Whose principles will we advance? Those of this world or those of Jesus Christ? And by choosing Jesus and his methods in the face of injustice is when we grow and when we shine brightest for the Lord. So what are the principles that we apply to our families that we learn from the life of Joseph? Healthy relationships require healthy people. Healthy relationships require healthy people, and healthy people are in governance of themselves. Joseph didn't have authority over his brothers. He didn't have authority over the slave traders or over Potiphar or Potiphar's wife or the Pharaoh or the cupbearer. He didn't have authority over God. Joseph only had authority to govern his own decisions. Would he trust God? Would he surrender his life to God? Would he trust God with outcomes? Or would he, in his own heart and mind, practice the methods of this world? Would he seek vengeance? Would he seek to fix it himself? Would he seek to retaliate? Joseph had to decide in governance of self which direction he was going to go. And consider, then, how love ruled in Joseph's decisions. Consider the decision when he was faced with the confrontation with Potiphar's wife, how Joseph's decisions were consistently the outworking of love. Can you see when he refused Potiphar's wife, this was an act of love for God. I love God. How can I do this sin against my God? It's an act of love for God. Yes or no? Was it an act of love for Potiphar? I love Potiphar. Was it an act of healthy self-love, protecting his own integrity, heart, mind, character? 
It's an act of love for Potiphar's wife. And there we go. Was it an act of love for Potiphar's wife? How? How was it love for Potiphar? She wants to have him intimately. How, how can his refusal be an act of love? Not Thank you. Not da- what happens to Potiphar's wife's heart, mind, soul, character if she commits adultery? It's, it warps her. It corrupts her. If he loves her like Jesus loves her, then he doesn't collude with actions that destroy her soul. So his refusal was also an act of love for Potiphar's wife. But if Joseph, instead of being motivated by love, is motivated with fear, with selfishness, with resentment, with bitterness, with hostility, with seeking to take advantage, with seeking to pay back, with seeking to hurt Potiphar, what action might he take then? (laughs) Ah, I'm going to get him now. (laughs) Yes? One other factor might be that her husband, Potiphar, was probably a eunuch as he was head of the captain, captain of the guard. And uh, that might have been one little factor in her desires. Whatever that was, doesn't make any difference. But... <laughs> well, Potiphar was captain of the guard. Awesome. And the jail was really, literally, in his house. So he was not far. He wasn't killed. If, if, if uh, Potiphar believed him, he would have been killed. But you can see how quickly Joseph became in charge of the jail. <laughs> he couldn't help Potiphar now. But Potiphar could use him still. Healthy relationships require healthy people, and healthy people are in governance of themselves. So Joseph demonstrates healthy self-governance, yes? Yes. Did that mean that all of his relationships are now healthy? Joseph has healthy self-governance, so all of his relationships are healthy? No. No, because not everybody he was dealing with was healthy. Understand this critical point. You cannot have healthy relationships with others if you yourself are not reasonably healthy. But even if you are reasonably healthy, even perfectly healthy like Jesus, you can still have a relationship with somebody like Judas who betrays you. That relationship broke down in betrayal, not because Jesus was unhealthy, but because Judas was. You cannot have a healthy relationship with an unhealthy person. You can have a relationship but not a healthy relationship. Healthy relationships require healthy people. Healthy people govern themselves, and they also own their own shortcomings. The unhealthy, the unconverted, the immature, they blame others. They deny, they distort, they project. They don't look in the mirror. They don't seek to own their own problems and through God's grace overcome them. If we want healthy relationships, we must deal with our own selves first and ensure that we're owning our shortcomings and through God's grace maturing and overcoming. It wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me. Not mature response. Adam needed to look in the mirror and own it before he could mature and heal. Healthy families require healthy parents. And healthy parents are in governance of themselves and practice God's methods and principles. Abraham brought conflict into his family by surrendering his decision-making to Sarah and violating God's methods and principles in taking Hagar. It was not Sarah's decision with whom Abraham slept. That was Abraham's choice. Regardless of Sarah's inciting it, requesting it, uh, uh, permitting it, Abraham surrendered that choice to Sarah, seeking to placate and appease Sarah, seeking to accommodate her to make her happy, to get her to stop whining. 
And worse, he sought to placate Sarah through a pagan custom that was contrary to God's design. Healthy parents will work together, will seek unity, will dialogue, will communicate. But at the end of the day, each individual must govern themselves in accordance with their own conscience and not surrender their decision-making to the other. I'm going to skip a little more than I had about families, and we're going to go on to Monday's lesson. Can I, can I just yeah. insert something quickly? This is about God, but I think it also applies to a Christian. Second Samuel twenty two twenty six. this is talking about God. To the faithful you show yourself faithful. To the blameless you show yourself blameless. To the pure you show yourself pure. But to the crooked you show yourself shrewd. So what you're talking about, I think, is relationships in any quarter, at home, at work, or whatever. Just because you are God's person and you are in loving and all that does not mean that you can deal with crooked people in a, just an open and run-all-over-me way. God deals with the crooked shrewdly. That is, you know, you can see them trying to trap Jesus all the time. He was shrewd, you know, and, and I think that's something that Christians... Uh, our need to develop too is some wisdom and, and how to deal with crooked people who are trying to invade your life and so on. I agree. Well said. So Monday's lesson, fourth paragraph, it says some cultures emphasize the role of the community over the individual, while other cultures are inclined to emphasize the role of the individual over the community. And we find balance in these two in Scripture. Uh, there is clearly a call to personal as well as corporate commitment to God. This idea of corporate commitment. Anybody have anything they want to opine about that? But, but this idea of corporate commitment. Anybody want to say anything about corporate commitment? Have you ever heard about corporate confession and corporate commitment and corporate guilt and corporate repentance? Have you ever heard about this stuff? Yeah, I, I got to tell you, um, and where the, and, and I, I heard a lot about this growing up in the church. It was a big deal for a while. We had to corporately repent for our corporate sins. You never heard that? Yes. Okay. And the big one is Daniel's prayer in Daniel 9, where they always point to. And so I went back and, re- and, and read that very carefully through design law. And Daniel's prayer in Daniel 9 had nothing to do with salvation at all. None. Zip. Nada. What did it have to do with? Be, and, and understand, corporations are not saved. People are. There is no corporate, let's have our corporate sin so the corporation can find salvation. That's not it. It's about fulfilling mission. Corporations and organizations can organize for mission, for a, for a purpose. Israel was called for the purpose of being the avenue through which Messiah would come. They had abdicated their faithful purpose to enlighten the world with the plan of salvation, the promised coming Messiah. They, they, they abdicated that. They went into pagan stuff. So God allowed them to be taken in captivity. And Daniel confessed, we haven't been doing our job on this mission. Let us get back on mission. And then what is the answer to Daniel's prayer? It's the prophecy of what? It's the prophecy and the interpretation of the prophecy of the coming Messiah to finish the mission. 
This is all about simply the corporation was called for a purpose and they said, please let us finish the mission for you. Okay, I will, and you will. It has nothing to do with salvation of the corporation. Salvation is individual. That's my view of it anyway. In the last paragraph, um, it says, to find rest, each must make a personal decision to follow God. Even if our ancestors are spiritual giants, this faith and spirituality aren't transmitted genetically. Remember, God only has children, not grandchildren. <clears throat> so if the, if, the, if the lesson is trying to suggest that, that we cannot pass along salvation, I'm saved so I can pass that on to my kids, biologically speaking, okay, uh, I have to agree with that. But does this mean that we can't pass along biological advantages or disadvantages to salvation? We absolutely can pass on. Remember, the commandment says that, that, that sins pass down three and four generations. Uh, this is an outworking of design law. God created Adam and Eve with the ability to procreate beings in their image. This means that as we live our lives, how we're designed, as we live our lives, your choices, your life experiences, all the way from at least three generations back, and then your own personal choices are altering the little molecules that attach to your DNA, telling your DNA how to express itself. It's called epigenetics. It's constantly in flux based on life experience, based on the food you eat, based on, on the, uh, the people you interact with, based on the God you worship, based on what you watch on TV. You're altering how your genes are expressed. Drugs that you take, for instance, if you uh, have abused drugs in the past. And all of these things, when you have children, you not only pass along the DNA sequences, the coded information, the library of, of uh, genetic material that, uh, that codes for all of the stuff that make you you, biologically speaking, you send along the, inf- uh, the instructions that tell which books to open and how to open. So our choices do. In my lecture, The Developing Brain, which is on our website under the... Um, uh, under the Chattanooga seminar we did a little about a year ago, I go through a long list of uh, the epigenetics and the e- evidences we have. But uh, before I get into that, I want to read you a couple of comments from uh, someone named Ellen White. It was written back in the 19th century, before the discovery of DNA, before the discovery of epigenetics. And listen to com- a couple of these uh, quotations. This is at our first Mind Character Personality 139. The nobler the aims, the higher the mental and spiritual endowments, and the better developed the physical powers of the parents, the better will be the life equipment given to their children. In cultivating that which is the best in themselves, parents are exerting an influence to mold society and uplift future generations. Though the, uh, through the indulgence of appetite and passion, their energies are wasted, and millions are ruined for this world and for the world to come. Parents should remember that their children must encounter these temptations. Even before the birth of the child, the preparation should begin uh, that will enable it to fight successfully the battle against evil. This is Adventist Home 172. The physical and mental condition of the parents is perpetuated in their offspring. This is a matter, this is a matter that is not duly considered. Wherever the habits of the parents are contrary to physical law, the injury done to themselves will be repeated in future generations. And then last one is um, Mind Character Personality 145. Last quote. A genuine conversion changes heredity and cultivated tendencies to wrong. So studies document, and I'll give you some science. This was back in the 19th century. 
Pregnant mothers with negative, depressogenic, and pessimistic critical thinking patterns during pregnancy epigenetically alter the developing brain of their fetus so their children will have increased risk of depression 20 years later when their kids are 18 to 20 years of age. Just the thought patterns of mom during pregnancy. If a mother's highly stressed during pregnancy, and it may not be because she has bad thought patterns, it may be because she's highly stressed because her husband gets sent to a war zone and gets killed in combat. Okay, high stress. But if she's highly stressed during pregnancy, then she has elevated glucocorticoids or stress hormones that cross the placental barrier, altering the developing uh, breaking mechanism on the child's stress circuitry epigenetically with new molecules attached to those genes, such that the child is born with an upregulated fear circuitry and they're more socially impaired, have more anxiety and more mental health problems later in life than had that pe- mother not been highly stressed during pregnancy. Foods that you eat epigenetically alter the developing fetus genome so that mothers during World War II in the Netherlands who only were getting 500 calories per day during their pregnancy, the children that were born during that time compared to the siblings of the same parents, those kids have higher rates of obesity and diabetes and high cholesterol metabolic problems later. Why? Because the low caloric intake during pregnancy epigenetically altered a gene that regulates caloric absorption, basically sending a signal, there's not much food out here. You're not going to be able to survive. So it it, it upregulated that gene so it was more highly expressed so they can extract more energy from food than their siblings. But the war clears, they get normal nutrition, now they get obese and diabetic. I can go on, there's many more. Uh, Cognitive behavioral therapy alters epigenetic expression and stress circuitry of the brain, meaning our thinking patterns, well documented. I'm going to have to jump now into Thursday's lesson to um, finish up on a couple of things. We look at... um, In Thursday's lesson, it says our relationships are a miniature reflection of the great controversy. And we think about the great controversy, there are two antagonistic principles raging, love versus selfishness. The primary methods of the two principles, love operates on truth and liberty, freedom and respecting uh, the, the autonomy of others. Selfishness operates on lies and coercion, manipulating others. Uh, the primary emotions of the two, love operates on a desire, a longing to benefit others, uh, welfare for others, a, a, jo- a compassion, a joy for, to see others succeed. That's what the emotions of love. Selfishness operates on fear, fear of loss, fear of rejection, uh, or lust or longing to protect self or to get for self, which brings a certain relief or a sense of pleasure. So selfishness or sin operates on the pleasure principle. More for me. Do we see these two principles at war in human history? Do we see them coming to a confrontation in the world today? The fear-driven, me-first, protect-self principles out there happening in the world today. And the Bible refers at the end of time that Satan is a roaring lion seeking who may devour. Now, uh, consider this. A lion's roar does not harm. It incites fear. And when animals hear a lion's roar, there are three responses. Three responses. Satan is the end time. He's roaring. He is inciting fear. Notice the three responses. When the animal hears the lion's roar, it will freeze. Don't move. Maybe I won't be seen. Freeze. The fear causes the freeze. It's the freeze, fight, or flight response. Freeze. Stop doing what you're normally doing. Stop gathering your nuts. Stop building your nest. Stop serving for others. Stop going to church. Stop having your choir practice. Stop meeting and visiting shut-ins. We're afraid. We could spread. a super spreader event. We're going to freeze. We're not going to do anything. Freeze. We're afraid. Or 
We're going to flee. Flight. The animal hears the roar. If they can, they'll flee. They'll try to get away if they don't freeze. Run away. Seek to hide to avoid the threat. So many, when they hear the fear messaging, they run. They hide. They avoid the conflict. Just stay silent. Don't speak up. Don't stand up for truth. Don't resist. Don't resist the liars. Hide in the crowd. Maybe no one will notice. (laughs) Or they fight. When you corner an animal, didn't freeze, couldn't flee, they'll fight when they're cornered. And how many Christians are being tricked into fighting, but they're not fighting with the weapons of God. They're fighting with the weapons of the world. Paul said, for we live in the world, we don't wage wars the world does. The weapons we use are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. And what do we demolish? We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. Our weapons are truth. The sword of truth, we wield it in love and we leave people free. We don't seek to get the government to pass the laws we want to force everybody to comply with what we think is right. That's the methods of the world. So we're going to present the truth in love, challenge people hopefully to think for themselves, exercise their own God-given abilities to discern, develop become a full, mature son or daughter of God to exercise governance like Joseph in the face of injustice that we apply God's methods to our lives to love and pray for those who would abuse us. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your goodness, for your love, and for the witnesses that you have given us through Scripture, these lessons for us to discern. May your Holy Spirit bring the motives that are not natural to our fallen human heart. We need Jesus in our hearts because in our own strength, we can't do it. So we ask for the yoke of love to, to bind our hearts to yours so that every day we can be thinking how we can honor you and how we can live uh, more fully in your favor and to honor and glorify you by practicing your principles and how we treat others. We pray in your holy name. Amen.